Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Are you aware that this week... The all-time, throughout history, record of best pun ever was set on Twitter by user at Death of Buckley, talking about this phase that we're in of being post-pandemic but still in the pandemic and all of this confusion that we have over what we should do and how we should behave, that we're on the road to demask us. I mean, we should all just give up and go home, shouldn't we? The rest of us. Good grief. We are in this phase as a church together. And we thought, what better uh, book, what better series to have in this little moment than um, a talk series on the book of Ruth. This brilliant, almost fairy tale like simple, self-contained, uncomplicated story of tragedy and love and loyalty and redemption. It is significantly unconnected to the narrative accounts and the books around it from Genesis through Kings that it's sandwiched between. And as usual, there's loads of contention about its author and its provenance. It's just always the case. Many believe that this one was written by a woman. We'll never know whether that's true this side of heaven. But what it definitely is, is one of two books in the whole of the Bible that are centered on the story and named after a woman. So I need to, at this point, grasp the nettle um, that you may or may not be aware of here. Um, I just need to raise a hand and say that this book may have been held up to you as an example of biblical womanhood in quite simple terms, because um, Ruth is self-sacrificing, she is compliant, she is interminably loyal, She denies her own needs as a caregiver out of her love for Naomi. It's a perfect example of of godly femininity. She is, of course, a lot more than that. She's courageous and she's full of faith and she's determined and she's inventive and she's trusting and she's a leader. Let's just say I came across more than the average amount of gender reductiveness and actually misogyny in my uh, pre-talk reading this week. And... To any of us who maybe aren't aware of another layer that's, on, that's going on here for other people when we look at this book, that's what we might miss if we are uh, not used to making comfort with the depiction of minority conformity here. Ruth is an outsider who moves to a place where her ethnic identity makes her low and despised, and she adapts, and she complies, and she assimilates, and she bows, and she submits the way that immigrant women women and men have been told to do with their bodies and their wills since the dawn of time. So it is confronting, is it not, 
that Ruth is portrayed as unquestionably good in how she conforms to this culture that is not her own. Because it's the kind of cultural imperialism that many of us are trying to raise our sensitivity and awareness of. So how can we teach from this book, this, this, teach the story of this woman, this archetype, this submissive, self-denying immigrant woman? Perhaps we should cancel Ruth. A much, much better idea is to intelligently ask ourselves how we can make sure we're not making these false interpretations of how some people would like women, and indeed immigrant women, to be, and instead let this text, in all of its countercultural revolutionary terms, speak for itself. The truth of the gospel when it comes to ethnic and gender, power and identity, is actually very simple. Jesus came to end all division. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. But he didn't come to end difference. He loves difference and variety and color and individuality and personal expression. The picture of what heaven will be like from Revelations isn't one of us all conformed together like one worshiping him. It's a very distinctly diverse, all nations, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God. He didn't come to make us this way as male or that way as female as in any way defined by gender identity. We have been saying this for a lot of years, but if your gender identity, being a son or daughter of the Most High God in all of the ways that it, that is depicted in the Bible, feels difficult at all, just say child of the King of Heaven. It has quite a nice ring to it, doesn't it? We also have to remember the genre of these stories. These are not this is how to do it stories. They don't give us a picture of God from the top of a moral ladder saying, be like these guys. I picked them because they're brilliant and their great moral performance is exactly how I'd like you to be because then look at Abraham who twice gave away his wife to have sex with another man. Look at Moses the murderer. Look at Jacob the deceiver. These stories are about the kind of God their God is in the context of a deeply tribal, deeply hierarchical worldview where gods really weren't good like this. That women's stories like Ruth were included at all, not just Ruth. Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca, the world's first theologian, slave girl, Hagar. That these stories are, are included at all is actually completely countercultural and revolutionary. And not just that they're included, that they express emotion and they solve problems and they use their intuition and their intellect and their skills. All despite the fact that they live in a world where they are seen as mere property. Because in this deeply tribal ancient worldview, life is just about survival. And in order to survive, you need your family to grow. So family is everything. Which means sons, who mean workers, and they mean ones who will protect you. They're really good. But daughters mean loss because they're going to marry away and leave your family. So, as Ed looked, last, looked at last week, Naomi, who is an Israelite, has left her home in Israel with her husband and, and sons, and they have sold their land. And they have traveled, traveled to Moab to escape a famine. 
One of her sons has married Ruth, who is a Moabite. And then all three men, Naomi's husband and her two sons, have died, which means quite a simple, important thing for Ruth and Naomi. They have lost their safety, they have lost their protection, and they have lost all source of provision. And this is bad for Ruth to have lost her husband, and not insignificantly, 10 years of marriage and she's not had any children. We don't really go into that, but it's bad for her because she's lost everything, but it's far worse for Naomi because she's old, so she has no hope of marrying again. As an old woman, her only hope of survival after the death of of her men would have been the family land. However, as we know, they've sold it. And as Ed looked at last week, the natural thing for Ruth to do in this situation would be to go back to her family and try and marry again, start again. But she pledges her life to Naomi. Your people will be my people, your God my God, she says at the end of chapter one, which is often quoted in weddings. But what she's saying here is even more selfless than it sounds to our ears, because she's not just saying that I give my whole life to you. She's saying I give my whole life to you, not just as a foreigner, but as an enemy in your land. Moab, uh, Moab himself was the um, was the descendant of the incestuous daughter of Lot. They're hated in Israel. They've got lots of history in between this point, um, but they're the evil arch enemy next door who years later, according to the law, are still disqualified from all association with Israel. It says in Deuteronomy, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you shall live. Good. Well, we're all caught up then. Let's look at chapter two. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. They've come back to Israel at this point. And Ruth, the Moabite, is going to be hammered home throughout the chapter. Pretty much every time she's mentioned, she's called Ruth, the Moabite from Moab. Everyone hates her. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Quick note on gleaning law. Leviticus commanded that Israel's farmers would not harvest all the way to the edges of their fields, but they had to leave some grain on the edges and in the corners for poor widows and orphans and foreigners so that they could come and glean it. It's a sort of social responsibility which was woven into Israel's law right from the very start. As it turned out, Ruth was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, Elimelech being Naomi's husband. As it turned out, there's a little hint to us there. It's a phrase used to sort of point out a crazy coincidence that's going on here. It's like, in a wild turn of events, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. This tells us a lot 
According to gleaning practice, once Ruth was done at the edge of Boaz's field, she'd have to move on to another field and ask permission to do the same there. And Boaz knows the danger she's in. Working with the poor, working with other Moab-hating gleaners, she's at risk. She's also at risk from the men who are working in the field. She has no protection whatsoever against them, and Boaz knows they will likely rape her. So what he's saying is actually quite a crazy offer. It's not only is he saying have food and water and safety under my protection, but he's also offering her the opportunity not just to glean at the edges, but to follow after his women as, as, a, as a harvester. So at this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz really shows his colors here. Despite being a good man and the keeper of the law, his prayer is that the Lord, the law of the law, the Lord of the law that prohibits that he feed and water a Moabite, he's asking that the Lord repay her and include her in his favor. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have standing of one of your servants. I'm skipping forward a little bit here. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. I looked up what an ephah is, and it said it's equivalent to a bushel, which is really helpful. It's about 50 pounds, apparently, to those of us that aren't from 19th century Iowa. 50 pounds. It's about the same as a basic fare Delta checked bag maximum. It's a bit more appropriate, isn't it? It's quite a lot. It's quite heavy. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she'd left over after she had eaten enough, because Boaz gave her a meal in the bit I skipped home. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? This clearly isn't gleaning. Where did you get all of this? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. So guardian redeemers needs a tiny bit of explaining as well. When Joshua and the people of Israel came into the promised land, all the land was divided among the families. So everyone got a piece of it. But it was written into the law. It's another one of this sense of social responsibility law being written into the way of life from the start. Um, that according to Leviticus 25, anyone who loses their land, who sells it, who you know, goes upon, lands on hard times and loses their land for whatever reason, will have opportunities to get it back. One of these, there are other ones, but one of these ways of getting it back is what's known as a guardian redeemer. So somebody in your family, if he wants to, can buy it back for you. And the if is a big problem here for Naomi, because what's also slightly complicating is that, as it said at the start of chapter one, um, it's the, this is the days when judges ruled, is it's sort of the dark ages of Israel's history, and the law is a lot more subjective. There's not a sense of, like, if it says this, we must all do it. So Naomi couldn't rely on this to help her in these days. But here she is, having this flash of realisation. Ruth has been shown 
favor in this field she has miraculously landed on that is of her guardian redeemer and that Boaz is also a good man. He would, he might be able to help her buy her land back for her. So chapter two ends not with a solution to their problems, but what Naomi has is hope. This lowly immigrant Moabite nobody, this friend who has laid down everything for her, has opened the door to a future for Naomi once more. Immigration is certainly not an uncontentious issue today, is it? I'm not sure I could actually make a single comment about it without it sounding highly political to somebody. And I say this, quite possibly, as the most recently arrived immigrant in the room. I'm not sure. Might be you, Ben. When it came to getting our visa to move here, I had not a small amount of laying things down to do myself. I don't know if you know this, but the cost of visa sponsorship is not small. It's actually very large, about a bushel large. Um, but because we are married and because of the automatic dependency of um, a spouse, if one of you gets of the visa, the other one automatically gets dependent status, it was clear that only one of us should do it. And because we were coming here to get a religious visa, it was clear, really, on the basis of a quite clear difference between our resumes at that point, not least the theological training that Ed had, that that really should be Ed to get it. Uh, so he submitted the application. Um, but for me, that was not okay. And so my prayer for many, many months went, yes, build your church, Father. Um, I lay it all down. Uh, I surrender, you know, all these songs. If this is what you want us to do, I will do this. Only if I have my own visa. That will be my sign. That will be the clear indication for me that you are doing this. Uh, You know, I would be, I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it was was not an unpainful thing. I felt I had already made my career sacrifices for Ed's calling at that point. Um, And this was now, you know post babies and trying to build something with it. And I had, I had built something. I'd, I'd built um, an animation wing of a digital company and we had, a, we had a great client base and it was going and I had, you know, I was earning and I had that sort of sense of like, I've done this. I, I have this status. I am now, you know, I have this degree of success that is mine because it's mine. Um, and there was also the sense of, to be very honest, if we're coming here to say that we're partnering to do this, this is, you know, this is what I feel is, is, is special about how we want to do this church, is it's not just another white man standing up and going, you know, this is how we do it here. It felt really important that it was both of us, partnership, modeling something different together, but it just made me feel like a fraud because I'm here with no status, with no social security, with no, you know, I'm not a real person here. I eventually let it go is the end of the story. It felt like a very wise thing to let it go because it felt like a very foolish condition to set, just a very expensive condition to set. And I moved here with no status and it took me 11 trips to the DMV to get a driving license because I didn't have social security. I also couldn't earn here for four years. I could still do my London job remotely. So, you know, boo-hoo, poor me with my insane privilege and nice house and great public school system that my kids went to and health insurance. I I really do know how this sounds. But I do wonder as well how many of us have been confronted recently with the conditions that we set on what trusting and surrendering really looks like. 
I will follow you on the condition that. I will trust you on the condition that. I will give myself away if. I will believe that you're good when. It is an entirely normal and human thing to have conditions, to have attachments. We can be attached to some very, very good things and some bad things and some neutral things. But I think this year, many things have been lost or reconfigured or questioned or turned upside down. And I think many of us are finding ourselves in a pretty significant state of disorientation when it comes to how we now bring these things to God and how we believe that that makes him think, makes him feel about us, how trustworthy he is. Because when it comes down to it, all attachment we have in this life, all goals, all personal passions, all dreams, all predetermined outcomes prevent us from surrendering ourselves fully in the truest sense to God in the way that we sing these songs about. And what a challenge that is to even the most mature professional Christians among us to give ourselves away like Ruth does without condition. In Film Club this week, we discussed the complicated life of Ted Ngoi, who's a Cambodian refugee who, along with 150,000 Cambodians escaping the Khmer Rouge, um, came here with immigrant or refugee status in the 70s and 80s. When he got here, Ted built an incredible empire. Today, of the 5,000 or so independent donut shops in California, 80% are run by Cambodians, which is entirely his legacy. It's a very interesting documentary. I highly recommend it on the issue of immigration and the American dream. But one thing really stuck out to me and a few of us on the Zoom camp, which was that when they first arrived, a military camp of tents was set up, and it's where many of them were placed. And it was churches who were approached, and it was churches who sponsored these families. Church families, Christians who took them into their homes. It's hard, possibly, for us to believe that the same thing might be true today. I don't want to ruin the documentary for it, but later in his life, Ted falls again on very, very hard times, and again, it was the church that he went to found acceptance with and forgiveness in. God, would we be known for this as a church again? The place where the outsider can find belonging, the sojourner finds rest, the broken can find healing, the lost a home, the destitute redemption. The place that takes in the ones that nobody else wants. The place where we offer what we have, not because of our moral superiority or our better way for anyone to assimilate into, but because we simply know ourselves to be undeserved and yet loved. So loved that we cannot help but share it. What is impossible to deny for the vast majority of people all over the world still today who are attempting migration, legally 
or illegally over the borders, like the 43 migrants who were killed yesterday off the coast of Tunisia as they were attempting to get to Europe, men, women, and children. Do so for one very simple reason, and that's that they have a hope and a belief for a better life. I think we can probably all agree in this room that none of us will really face whatever it is that drives you to get to another country, risk your life to get to another country because you desperately need a better life that badly. This is where Ruth differs. Because Ruth, the Moabite, had already chosen to leave her prospects and hopes for a better life. She's given up her future in order for Naomi to have hers back. The word Naomi uses when she... You know, Naomi from chapter one, my name is bitter, the Lord has turned against me, Naomi. When she responds to the news that uh, Ruth is bringing home at the end of verse 20, she says, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. This word here is um, translated from the Hebrew uh, hesed, but as is often the case, it actually has a lot more meaning than just the word kindness or loving kindness, because the root word is um, one from to kind of bow one's head as courtesy to show to say to someone who is not an equal that they are an equal. It has a sense of love and it has a sense of grace and dialogue to it. The idea of going beyond what is expected. It's, it's gracious, it's kind, it's undeserved, it's merciful love. I just wonder how many of us today are just in very simple, desperate need of receiving that love again from God today. Hesed love. Loving kindness that doesn't demand, doesn't treat us as we deserve. It meets us and transforms us. Because it's this love. Knowing ourselves to be loved this way, that's the only real and lasting driving force for anything that we do. Taking in refugee families, inviting people to church, praying consistently for things that we need, giving ourselves away, giving our money away, anything, the only fuel that makes any of those things sustainable as a church and as Christians is constantly receiving Hesed love. We will burn out if anything else is our fuel. So before I finish, and I invite you all up to come and receive some of that from the Holy Spirit this morning, I just want to steal a moment from chapter three. Because what I love about Ruth's stories more than anything else is this moment. It's before any of the actual redemption happens. It's before anything in these women's stories occurs that will change their conditions with sons, with heirs, with the land that they're going to get. And in fact, in Ruth's case, uh, being this destitute immigrant who later becomes written into the story of the saviour of the world, his direct descendant. Before any of that, Ruth is named woman of noble character, woman of valor, some people translate it. While she's still the Moabite, while she's still the childless widow, while she's still the dirt poor nobody, she is given the highest praise of almost any other woman in scripture. Not because Boaz redeems her, not because of what the world because of what changes in her situation, just because that's who God says she is. Because this is what our Saviour does. This story pointed all the way along 
to the story of the great redeemer who's coming. A child born in Bethlehem who, like Ruth, leave the place where he belongs and, like Boaz, is our flesh and blood. He comes to give you a new name. Not because of your correct gender identity or ethnicity that you're born into the right family, not because you're beautiful, not because you're successful, not because anything is going okay. Because of what he did, you are a child of God. You are an heir. You're made strong in your weakness. You're accepted. You're included. So if Ben and Bailey, you guys want to come up and um, lead us again. I feel like any of those songs would work for this, whichever one you want to do. Maybe your new one was lovely. If you want to stand and sing, what I would encourage you to do as we sing is if there are things that feel like conditions to you, or if they don't feel like conditions, they feel like things that won't be okay until, the things that you've been asking God for a really long time, to surrender those again, as difficult as it is, not because we're saying God doesn't like them and he doesn't want to give you them, but because this is what love, receiving this love, compels us to do. Knowing that he's a good father who gives us good things. Surrendering ourselves again. Let's stand.